Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, I feel like we've had a couple weeks off. Thank you. Um, last week, we, I don't know if, you, if uh, any of you guys were a part of the missions uh, celebration and banquet that we had, and um, uh, Mark, Pastor Mark Orphan was with us the week before. And so I just, I feel like I haven't been here for a while. I've, uh, I've missed you guys, so I'm glad you're here. And how many of you guys are celebrating um, spring, spring break? Does anyone actually get a spring break anymore? There's not a whole lot of us. Okay. Um, well, if you do, I hope you get some time to just kind of relax this week and, or, or watch other people relax while you're working hard if they're having their spring break. So, um, hey, can I invite our ushers to come forward? Um, this is just our weekly time of tithes and offering and really grateful for the faithfulness of Timberline community who sacrificially gives uh, regularly. So we've, we've already prayed. You can go ahead and pass those. Thank you. Um, over the... Uh, over the past few weeks, my kids, my, my two oldest kids recently got, uh, for Christmas, we got them uh, these little Kindles, you know, like a Kindle reader, kind of a digital reader thing. And, and of course, they sold it to us like, we're going to be just bookworms, we're going to read all the time and stuff. Well, coming to find out there's games on these things, so they play a lot of games on them. But there's this one game, I don't know if you guys have seen this, I think it's, I think it's online too, but it's, it's called Logo Quiz. Have you seen this thing where it's like they put up they put up a logo, but it's not the complete logo. There's like stuff missing from it, and then you have to guess like, oh, let's see who you know what you know what company is that. Look look at a couple of these and go ahead and guess out loud if you can. See if you can guess what what logos are there. Okay, that's you are a fast food community. Yeah, that's sad. Pizza Hut, Pizza Hut. You're right. Okay. Yeah, if you work there, you better know this one. HP. Okay, good. Samsung. Some of you say it like you know. You just heard the person behind you saying it. Okay. Shame on you. Shouldn't know that. MTV. Yeah, music television. Yeah, the show that actually used to play music. Sadly, we all know this one, right? You, you can't eat just one. Pringles. Okay. <laughs> that one's too easy. I realize I'm like, there's a giant U above it. Should have just left the OU or something. YouTube. Okay. What is this? United Airlines. Okay. Oakley, sunglasses. And what is it? Powerade, the drink. <laughs> yeah, we should all know this one. I love it. I love it. This is the last one. Napster. Napster. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, one thing that, that, that's interesting to me, um, any, any philosophy you go to, any religion, any school of thought, any ideology, always has some sort of a symbol, some sort of a logo, something that, that speaks to, to who they are, what they're about, and, and, and that's, it's, it's their branding, really, is what it is. 
Um, philosophies have this. Uh, Buddhism has the lotus. And you'll oftentimes see a lotus as this, this, this open flower. It's, a, it's oftentimes a picture of uh, beauty coming out of chaos or, or birth and rebirth. It's cyclical. Sometimes you'll see the Buddha sitting enthroned in a, in a fully open lotus flower. Uh, Judaism has the Star of David, right? Um, or the shield of David, though they were very um, hesitant to use any sort of images because of the second commandment, not, not to make images. They, they have, uh, in recent years, adopted this as their sign. Uh, Islam has, has the crescent moon, um, even though it existed you know, before that in Byzantium as a, as a symbol of power. Um, the Marxist hammer and sickle, right? Um, it's, it's a picture of both field workers and, and people in the, um, in the shops coming together, uniting as one. There's the swastika. Um, different different re- movements, religions, ideologies always have a symbol that, that gets to who they are as a people. It's really interesting. You know, Christianity early on had, had a lot of different pictures that, that it leaned on for that sort of sense of identity, who we are, what we're about. Some of the earliest symbols that, that we found are, are on the walls and the ceilings of the catacombs, these underground burial tombs in Rome where apparently Christians hid out during some of the early persecution. And so we have um, things painted on those, um, oftentimes a peacock, which is, which is the symbol of, of, of light, um, or a dove, uh, the, the athlete's victory palm, symbolizing the idea of um, it's not over, even though it might be over in this life, the fish. Um, and, of course, these were always safe symbols to the persecuted church because you had to kind of interpret them. You know, they were encrypted. A peacock, all, those things are all safe. Only the initiated really know what those sorts of things mean. Later on, even in the second century, um, Christians seem to have painted all more, more murals of different biblical events. Uh, Abraham sacrificing the ram instead of Isaac. Or um, Daniel um, in the lion's den, or his, or his three friends in, in the fire, or, or Jonah being spit out from the giant fish, different pictures. And again, only the instructed would, would know what this is about, so it was a way of safety. But whatever picture or symbol or icon these early followers of Jesus universally accepted had to speak to what was Jesus really all about. And there really were a lot. You know, you think about it, they could have chosen the crib, you know, this, this was the thing that the Magi brought the gifts to. The incarnation, you know, we, we kind of think of that moment as here's, um, here's the God-man in baby form in a crib. It could have been the workbench that, that Jesus spent most of his life on, giving, giving dignity to, to uh, manual labor. Maybe it was the apron, you know, that he tied around himself at the Last Supper. And he got down and he washed his disciples' feet, a, a picture of what it means to follow Christ. It's a picture a picture of service. It could have been the rock that was rolled away from the tomb, symbolizing resurrection, life. They're, they're, all of these are great options. But what's interesting is um, they chose a cross. They chose a cross. And this doesn't really strike us that odd because it's, it, it, it's, um, it's so benign. Most, it's, um, it's kind of bland anymore, at least here, some parts of the world. It still has extreme meaning, but but think about what a hard sell this was. Imagine, you know, the Jewish people in our day and age, the image of a um, of a gas chamber 
to a contemporary Jew would be a symbol of defeat and, and oppression, a symbol of what other evil people had done to them. This is what crucifixion was to the early world. Think about it, even the Romans. The Romans adopted this uh, process of crucifixion, but they, they still had disdain for it. No Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified, except in um, some um, horrible case of treason against Rome itself. But only what they called non-persons could be crucified. Um, slaves, foreigners, but certainly not a Roman citizen. Cicero, one Roman, in one of his speeches, he, he condemned crucifixion in relationship to a Roman citizen using these words. Listen to this. Cicero said, It is a most cruel and disgusting punish, punishment. Okay? So this is how Romans thought about crucifixion. He went on to say, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And he went on to say, the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts and his eyes and his ears. Indeed, the mere mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. And if Romans hated crucifixion, thought it was disdainful and sad and pathetic and awful, the Jews did too, but for a very different reason. The Jews um, didn't make any distinction between a cross, something like this, and a tree. And in Deuteronomy chapter 21, there's a, there's a curse put on anyone who, who hangs from a tree. So hanging was the same as crucifixion, that that person was under the curse of God. And so they would apply that to anyone who was hung by a tree or hanging on a cross. This idea that God had cursed them. And so you can imagine how this was viewed by the Jews. Um, in fact, in 4 BC, Jesus was born right around that time, approximately 4 BC. Um, Varus was a Roman general. And Varus, after a Jewish uprising, there was uh, a revolt. Varus came in and he, he suppressed it, and then he crucified 2,000 of the Jews who were following this kind of would-be Messiah named, named Judas, not the same one from uh, the New Testament that we read about. A few years later, an event that Jesus prophesied would happen, 70 AD, the Roman general Titus comes into Jerusalem, again after another Jewish revolt, and wipes out the city, destroys the temple, and in the process, crucifies so many Jews that the Jewish historian Josephus puts it like this. There was neither, quote, space for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies could be found. That many were crucified. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And yet, this is the symbol that these early Jewish followers of Jesus, largely, felt compelled to embrace felt compelled to adopt into the world, even today, this is, a, this is just a symbol of derision, of ridicule, of foolishness. Even still today, there are those who would refuse to, to recognize it and especially think, man, this thing cannot be associated with Jesus. Islam is a great example. Islam who would say Jesus was a good man, a prophet, but God would never allow, Allah would never allow a good prophet to come to so hideous an end 
So they would deny the historicity entirely of the, of the, of the cross. You think of the uh, atheist philosopher of the end of the beginning of the last century, Friedrich Nietzsche. He, he thought it was the biggest joke. He said, are you kidding me? This is, you've got this weak God. He called him the God on a cross. And he ridiculed it. Even aberrant or false religions today who claim to be the, the true followers of Jesus um, remove crosses from their building, from themselves, saying, you know, they have no, no part in it. The uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Jehovah's Witnesses, would be ones who would say, we don't want anything to do with crosses for different reasons, but they remove them from their bodies, from their buildings. But yet we can't remove the cross from Jesus. If we do, we lose who Jesus is. And if Jesus is God come in flesh, we can't remove the cross or we remove God. We lose out on God. And so what, what we're going to do over these next few weeks is look at this whole idea of the cross. Like, what is that about? Why for 2,000 years has the picture of something that's closer to a gas chamber in reality become a symbol by which Christ said he would conquer the kingdoms of this world, not through force and power, but, but through hearts? How could that happen? What would that look like? Paul wrote in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast, and this is one of the most educated people in the world, okay? educated not only in his own religion, knowing other Greek philosophy. And Paul says, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we're looking at this here. Um, four weeks from today, do you guys realize this, this is crazy how fast it's coming? Four weeks from this weekend, you know what it is? It's Easter. Like that's coming really fast. Um, you got to start painting eggs if you've got kids and all that kind of stuff. And um, four weeks from from this Friday is Good Friday, and during that week we're not going to be meeting in our normal Wednesday night. We're going to be meeting Friday evening in here at six thirty. So I hope that you guys will will come and be a part of it. It's going to be a special um, experiential service where we really look at this idea of boy, what what happened on that Good Friday. You know, that's the day that he died. And again, it's going to be an experiential moment. Um, but what I want to do over these next four weeks, and the reason you know, we're talking about this, is because I want, us, I want us to prepare ourselves for Easter. Easter, you guys, is like the biggest day on the Christian calendar. It's the, it's the most significant one. Good Friday is the most solemn day on the Christian calendar. But we too quickly go past it. And so I want us to take these four weeks to prepare ourselves to walk into that experience. Because, see, here's my thought. is I think, I think there's a real danger, especially for the American church, to, um, you know, one of our high values is immediacy. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm influenced by sort of fast food things. I get to the solution real quick. Even in my walk with God, I want to get to the celebration. I want to get to Easter. I want to get to, but the church has historically said we need to prepare ourselves for that. Listen, listen to the words of John Stott. He says it so well. He writes, "It must be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly." Now, the atonement is this idea that my sins are paid from Jesus. Great. He says we learn to appreciate. The access to God, which Christ has won for us, only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. 
We can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we have first cried, woe is me, I am lost. Do you get that? That's the gospel. It's the best news in the world. But it starts with bad news. The good news starts with you're in a bad situation, therefore I... It's only good news because there's bad news before it. So tonight, again, I want us to briefly look at what, what John Stott calls God's inaccessibility to sinners, to us. Because, see, I would suggest that you can come to church your whole life. You can, you can take communion. You can, you can say the creeds. You can serve in, in, a, in a significant way. You can engage in worship and, and really not get what God has done for you. You can never really know the power of, of Christ's resurrection in life. If you first don't know about your sin, your guilt, your alienation from God prior to that. See, the way Jesus put it um, to a man who, who invited him for dinner, we just got done doing a, uh, a parable series, and this was another one of these parables. We didn't talk about it in this series, but he was invited to a dinner, and a man was sitting in front of him and, and um, treating him respectfully, but, but just kind of you know, from a distance, you know, being kind and that sort of thing. And then this woman comes in, if you remember the story, and she's kissing his feet and wiping him with her, with her hair. And this guy's kind of indignant, like, this is, this is a ridiculous show of affection. And Jesus tells this, this story, this parable, of two different people who are forgiven. One a little bit, one a lot. And at the end he goes, who do you think loved the master more? Because you know, they were forgiven the debt. And he goes, ah, probably the guy who was forgiven a lot. And he goes, yeah. If you think you've been forgiven little, you'll love little. If you know you have been forgiven a lot, you will love a lot. And so that's what I would, I guess, challenge all of us is if you feel like, do I love God? Yeah, a little. You want to love him more? Then look at what you have been forgiven. Over these next few weeks, I really encourage you to do that. So as we get into this, um, two things that I want us to start with. These are, these are two things that I would say are um, observations that, that we can make by looking at the cross. Now the first one is, our sinfulness. First thing that we see by looking at the cross is our sinfulness. Um, how many of you guys know H.G. Wells? H.G. Wells was a, was a British author um, in this past century. H.G. Uh, Wells wrote something. Now, I want you to think about the year in which he wrote it, okay? Because this is, this is kind of significant here. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll write it up here. He wrote this in um, 1937, Okay. If you know your history, think about things going on. H.G. Wells, like, like many British intellectual elites, is so pumped and so excited by, by human advancement. I mean, just going, you guys, we are doing so much. We're solving so many problems in our world. We're, we're, I mean, our, you know, the, the technology is booming. There's like nothing that can stop us. And so H.G. Wells in 1937 writes, Can we doubt that precisely our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, well said, the little triumphs of his present state form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. Wow. 
That's a lot of hope. H.G. Wells died in 1946. Now think about, if you know your history, something that took place in between that time period globally. Listen to his words in 1946. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. Now, what do you suppose rocked H.G. Wells that much that he went from his words here to his words there? Yeah. I mean, the atrocities of World War II, genocide, and evil, like that generation had never ever seen and leading up the end of the 19th century people thinking things things can only go up from here baby things are getting good it's only going to get better um dorothy sayers is another english author who was around at this time dorothy sayers was in england observing all of this going on observing because she was in that intellectual uh, world as well of the elites in britain and she she saw the change that happened And she made some really interesting observations about it. Um, She said, basically, here's why the bottom of all these people's world dropped out on them. is because they believe people are basically good. And if you put them in the right circumstances, the right scenarios, right education, right economic background, right... if, If you can kind of manipulate society to be, you know, education's there, finances are there... People are going to do the right thing. They're going to choose the good, not just for themselves, of course, but for others. And Dorothy Sayers um, said that this new hopelessness, I mean, because she said, you've got to realize there is a hopelessness in these people who really thought everything was going like this. This is so interesting. She said the hopelessness is due to people giving up on one belief, the belief in in something called original sin. Original sin is the Christian doctrine that this is a universal condition, that every single person at their deepest level is turned inward upon themselves, is broken, is twisted, is self-centered. Listen to Romans chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can open. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul writing on this idea that the intellectual elite of Britain kind of came, you know, came to in the uh, mid-20th century, Paul is saying this, speaking of both, now he's a Jew who has the law, who knows how to act, and he's writing about also non-Jews, Greeks or Gentiles, who, you know, they don't even have God's law. And he says, Jews and Gentiles alike, verse 10, are all under the power of sin. As it is written, and then he quotes from a couple different psalms in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's sort of pulling all these quotes together from the Old Testament. He's trying to prove the Old Testament's taught this forever. Quote, there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then in verse 23, a little later, for all have sinned, he says. All have sinned and fallen short 
of the glory of God. Paul, two chapters later in chapter 5, speaking of our first parent, Adam, says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world, he's speaking of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's rebellion against the Creator. Just as sin entered the world through one man, that being Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people. And he's not just meaning physical death. He is meaning that, but he's, he's speaking of this sort of disintegration, deterioration of the fabric of society and life. It's interesting, this statement in Genesis chapter 2, where God says to Adam and Eve, when you learn, he says, this is all for you to enjoy. He goes, there's one thing, though, that I ask. Don't touch this. Obey me. Because in the day you do eat of this, surely you will die. He, the literal translation is, in dying you will die. The day you do this, in dying you will die. Death will be like a tidal wave wiped over everything you know. It will be shattered and cracked and broken and and smeared by death. That's what he's meaning by this idea, this universal sin condition that's that's going on here. So it's universal, but here's the really scary part. You thought this was a depressing talk, so just wait for this one. This is even worse. Listen to where the sin is. Jesus' words, Mark 7.21. Mark 7.21, Jesus says, For it is from within... Out of a person's heart, that evil comes. And then he gives this like list, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, fault. It comes from the innermost sanctions of an individual's soul. It comes from their core, from the very center of who they are. And see, here's the thing. If sin were like a monster, okay, if sin were kind of like, out there, apart from me somewhere, then, then, then I could isolate myself, right? I could just kind of go away from it. I could shut myself off somehow, somehow keep it out there. If it were something physical in my body, well, then I could just abstain from pleasing my body. I could sort of starve it out, just give my, you know, my body the near minimum, and then, and then it's not really running anymore. And so I could be done with sin that way. If sin were only in my mind, if it were just bad thought patterns, I could just replace all my thoughts with new ones through education or therapy or transcendental meditation, fill in the blank, whatever you want. That would be a way that I could just sort of uh, isolate myself from this in one way or another. And see, this is what I would suggest human religion tries to do. Um, It's basically moral conformity. Human religion is an attempt to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manipulate something, my body, the situation, something, what I believe, to, to get over this problem, to defeat this whole sin thing. Because again, most people recognize there's something deeply wrong. Something's broken. There's a dislocation going on. Um, some of you guys will know the book. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote the book some time ago, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, in, in this book, um, Dr. Jekyll comes to realize that he's, he, he's got a good nature and a bad nature, and his bad nature is holding him back. You know, he wants to do all these things, but he, he can't realize them, you know, because in his words, he says, um, I am an incongruous compound of good and evil. It's sort of like he recognizes, you know, what the Apostle Paul says, where he goes, the stuff I want to do, I don't do. And the stuff that I, that I don't want to do, I keep finding myself doing. 
And Dr. Jekyll realizes that. He goes, man, I've got, I've got this like war going on inside me, and I want to do all these things, but I can't. This, this bad side of me keeps tripping me up. And so therefore, um, Dr. Jekyll comes up with a potion. Right? He's going to drink this potion, and the potion will, will, will separate his good side from his bad side. And he believes that, that his good nature, which will come out in the daytime, um, will, will finally free him, free that part of him from, from the influences of evil, and he will finally be able to accomplish and do all the things that it is he's, he's wanting to do. However, one night when he takes the, the potion, his bad side comes out. And it is far worse than he thought it actually was. These are the words from Stevenson. He says, uh, speaking for um, Dr. Jekyll, I knew myself, this is when he, his, his bad side, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil. And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. He goes on to say, in every act and thought centered on self. See, Stevenson, the author, names Edward Hyde that not just because he's hideous, but, but, but because he, he's hiding something from others. He, he thinks only of his own desires, and, and, and he will go to any lengths, even if it's hurting someone or, or killing someone, to accomplish and, and achieve what he wants in some way. And Stevenson is saying that even the best people hide from themselves what is within them. Even the best of us hide this enormous capacity for evil, for self-absorption, for self-aggrandizement. And so once Dr. Jekyll realizes this capacity, I mean, once he sees Hyde and he realizes this is way darker than I thought, I'm pulling this out and, 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 and then it's going to destroy things. And he gets in trouble by the police. He, you know, he's uh, committed all these crimes. Um, basically, he gets religion. And by that, I mean moral conformity. He goes, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a handle on this. I'm, I'm going to put a clamp down on this, on this evil side of me, and I vow to, to not take this, this potion anymore. And, and then as a result, he, he devotes himself to, to acts of charity. He devotes himself to, to doing good things. And he does it for two purposes. One is to kind of make, an, you know, make amends, make an atonement for all of the awful, awful things that, that he did in the person of Hyde. But also, um, he, he, he does it, all of these good things, um, or acts of kindness, um, really to kind of try to kill his selfishness, I guess if I could put it that way. Um, it's, you know, like a killing it with kindness. Like, if he can put enough good stuff on all the bad stuff, then he thinks he can kind of starve the bad part of him, okay? If I just keep piling up enough and enough, I kind of become that person because I felt bad about who I was, so I'm going to become this kind of person that I want to be. However, one day, Dr. Jekyll is sitting on a bench at Regent's Park, and, and he's thinking about all the good because he's, he's been doing this for a long time all the good stuff he's been itchy, he's, he's kind of going over in his mind all the good stuff that, that he's been doing how, how much better of a man he is than he used to be how much better of a man he is really than man all the people who you know who, who don't do these sorts of things who haven't had this epiphany and he writes this i resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past 
And I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know how earnestly in the last months of the last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much you know how much was done for others. And then here's the key. And he, um, he says, but as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at that very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea. And it made the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down and I was once more Edward Hyde. Now, see, for the first time, Jekyll becomes Hyde involuntary. He didn't take a potion. And he realizes he's, he, he's unable to control these transformations. And so he goes on for a while. Awful things happen. He realizes he can't stop it. And so sadly, he, he knows this is the beginning of the end, and he takes his own life. He commits suicide. But see, Stevenson here is making a profound observation about sin and the human heart. See, Jekyll knows He's a sinner, right? He's, he's aware of his sin. And he tries desperately to cover his sin with, with, with these masses of good works and acts of charity. But see, here's the problem. All his efforts to, to shrivel the self-absorption, what does it do? It aggravates it. It feeds the self-absorption. See, here's why. If his base heart problem is self-absorption, Okay. And he does all of these sort of other-oriented acts of charity in order to get over this rottenness. How is he going to feel about himself once he's accomplished it? Because he's doing this on his own, right? He's going to feel great. He's going to feel proud of himself. So Jekyll becomes Hyde, not, not despite his goodness. He becomes Hyde because of his goodness. See, the reason he first wanted to stop doing evil, you think about it, remember, you know, when he's, I mean, the reason why he said, I can't do this anymore, is because he didn't like how he felt. I'm a, I feel like a bad person. I don't want to be a bad person. And so he does good deeds, it works, and now he thinks he's a pretty great guy for doing them. So he's back being the person he was trying to destroy. And see, remember, remember the moment when Jekyll turned into Hyde, involuntarily. It, it was when he was sitting there thinking about, I've really done a good job. What, what a fine person I am for doing that. See, don't you see? What, this is what Jesus is saying to us, that for it is from within, in his words, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. And so any attempt to, to control them, we learn from Jesus, most clearly we learn from Stevenson, any, any attempt for me to control those things in my own power only pushes me further in. Okay? Now that's the problem. Um, but I want to leave us with the problem for just a minute. Okay? And I want us to get to something else, another, another piece that we see here. Our sinfulness... God's holiness... When the Bible speaks of God's holiness, it means that his nature, means who he is, stands against evil. Um, he can have no other reaction to atrocity, 
to, to evil, to wickedness, than, than to judge it, to oppose it. God can never um, morally compromise out of weakness. And see, the problem is that God's holiness is absolutely incompatible with our sinfulness. Um, the Bible speaks of how, how God responds, because he's holy, when he comes in contact with, with, with sinfulness. Um, and the Bible uses five metaphors, okay? Let me kind of give you these five metaphors to try to get at this idea of, like, you know, what is God thinking? How does God react to evil? The first one is height, the idea of, of height. God is, God is the most high, it says in Scripture. You know, it's, it's not literally saying he's high, but it's the idea that it, it, it speaks to distance. He's above. A second metaphor that's used is, is just distance. He's far away. Remember the times when, when Moses or the Israelites, when Moses first sees the burning bush, and he says, stop there, you can't come any closer. It's to communicate this idea of, I am so holy that you can't come any closer to who I am because of your sinfulness. Keep your distance. The temple was a perfect example that, that, that just pounded this idea into the minds of, of Israel. That you could come this far, but then you had to stop. And a priest, he could come this far, but then he had to stop. And the high priest could come this far, but then he had to stop. It's that idea of, of, of holiness, of distance there. A third metaphor that's used in Scripture of how God, because of his holiness, responds is light. Um, bright light is blinding. And our, our eyes can't endure something that, that, that's just completely brilliant in its light. Fourth one is fire. Fire consumes impurity. That's the idea. We see that used a lot in Scripture. God is a consuming fire. Maybe the most dramatic one, the most offensive to our culture, is vomiting. Is a lang- is language that, that's used constantly about God's reaction to evil. Vomiting is the body's most violent reaction. In the Old Testament, we're told of different people groups who lived in Canaan, like the Canaanites. And God says that because of their, their evil deeds, how they're treating others, their adulteries, is the land will vomit them out. And then he tells Israel, but you watch it, because if you start acting like them, the land will vomit you out. It's this metaphor in this picture of like what, what happens to the stomach when you consume poison. This, this violent reaction. It, it can't come in contact with it. And of course, that's exactly what evil is. It's poison to the heart. That interior thing that we were talking about earlier. See, this is why the Bible constantly employs the language saying that no human being can set eyes on God. Now, they obviously didn't understand it to be, in some sense, literal, because they said, well, God doesn't have a body, so it's not going to look at it. But to say you can't even set eyes on him, but it would say things like you may, you may look at his back. You may, you may see his glory or a little bit, but, but you can't stand all of it. You can't even lay eyes on him. Now, why is that? Um, maybe one of the most famous Bible verses, John 3, 16. Says, Jesus says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, anyone, you know. As soon as he gets done with saying that, he says, or Jesus says, here's the verdict. He's giving his sort of assessment on the world. And he says, lights come into the world, brilliant light. But men love darkness because their deeds are evil. And see, what he's saying is, imagine yourself as a person who's lived in a cave your whole life. And your eyes have become so accustomed to that cave that 
at times you even prefer darkness. Now imagine that, that you were asked to walk out into the bright daylight and not just look around, which you can do, but to look directly up into the sun itself. It would destroy your eyes. I mean, your, your retinas and corneas would be obliterated. You couldn't see into it. See, when the Bible says God hates sin, and it, it uses language like he will pour out his wrath on sin, it doesn't mean that we should picture God as someone who, who, who flies off the handle, someone, someone who has an anger problem in a way. Um, God doesn't change. He, he doesn't have these emotions that are, that are up and down. Rather, sin, like weak eyes, will be destroyed because they're unable to look into the sunlight. See, constantly in the Old Testament, we read of people being allowed to, again, you know, see the back, is the language used, of God, but, but not, not his face, to see the sun, but not the sunshine. You see, it's not that God can't handle the presence of sinners, because he obviously does. He, he calls sinners. He loves sinners. He seeks out the lost, as though it's some sort of a weakness in him, oh, you know, he can't be around him. It's rather the idea that we are too weak. We will be consumed. We will, be, we will burn up in the presence of absolute light. The weakness and the deficiency is ours. God's abstaining from revealing his whole presence is so we are not wiped out, so we're not destroyed. Destroyed. See, that's why the Bible says sin is, is incompatible with God's holiness. Here's the final question I have for tonight. How can we remain ourselves and give God? We can't. That's the problem. Um, C.S. Lewis said, here's, here, here's kind of how we oftentimes approach God. It's sort of like, think about a, a person paying your, a paying your taxes. After the government takes this portion for that, and you have federal, and you've got state, and you've got social security, the hope is i got enough left in my hands after I'm done paying taxes that I can do with what I want, and, and, and it's, it's mine. And, and he says, that's kind of how we approach God. We say, okay, God, what do you want? You know, what kind of devotion? You know, what do I got to do? What things? And at the end of the day, I hope there's enough left that I can do what I want. And God goes, you'll burn up. If you want me, you've you got to change. But moral, moral perfection and changing doesn't work. That just makes it worse. So how is it? Listen, listen to Lewis when he writes this. He says, this is God's response to that question. And then we'll pray. God says, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work, I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only to prune a branch here and there. Um, rather, I want the whole tree down. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all your desires, all your wants and your wishes and your dreams, turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and I will exchange. I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. Well, that's it. That's the solution. That's what we were talking Remember Jesus said, where's the infection? It's in the heart. It's out of the heart that evil comes. 
So you, no change will do that we can our own. Our heart is infected and we need a transplant. And that's what the cross promises. Nothing less than an actual heart transplant. Why does Jesus say to Nicodemus, you must be born again? Why does he say to the woman at the well, you'll have streams of living water bubbling up out of inside you. A life will come out of you that is not your own, but only only if you embrace this. Only because of the cross. Because I need all of you. I need the whole tree down. There's nothing of you that's, that's off limits. There's no natural preserve in your life that's uninfected. So I need it all. And that's what we're going to be looking at these next weeks of the cross. And as we approach Easter in an appropriate attitude, in a way of, of realizing and seeing, God, this is what you've done for me. And if you've never seen it in this light, I hope you will be shattered by the cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I think about the song that, that we sang earlier. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. God, that, that is our prayer this evening, that in our lives, God, that we would have the cross so fixed before us that all other things, even the things that we would say are good and noble and upright, that we would offer them to you. We would recognize that you want us all, and that's the only way that we can really have a, a heart transformation. That's the only way that we can live free of the power of sin, that we will not be addicts to the good things and make them ultimate things, but we will center our lives in you, that we will find our identities first in you, and that we will, as your son said, lose our lives in order to find them. And that great paradox we see true as we embrace the cross. God, we are grateful. I thank you for this community. I thank you for a group of people who would turn outward, not in a way of self-improvement, but because they have taken up their crosses, they have followed your son. And God, may we be a community which cares and shares, which may this be a safe place where we can be honest about our sin and our brokenness and our hurts, and we can comfort one another with the comfort we have received from Christ. God, I'm so grateful for that. Go with us this week, God. Empower us. Keep the cross ever before us. We pray this in your son's powerful name. Amen. Amen. Hey, real quickly, you guys. Um, we, you know, we do this every week if you're new with us. Um, we, we've got kind of just snacks and stuff in the back. I would love to just have you guys hang around, hang out. Um, go get your kids if you have them in a few minutes. Bring them back and just eat, be together as a community. Can I say one thing? Um, the, one great thing that I love about, about this community is that there are so many opportunities to, to grow and mature. And so we don't have a whole heck of a lot of excuses on, on like things in our life when we've got so many opportunities here. On the back, um, two things that are starting up that are, I, I'm thrilled about because uh, I kind of had a hand in getting these people in here, working with some others, and I believe in them. I trust these people. Renee Woodall is going to be doing a parenting class starting next week for six weeks. It'll be phenomenal, using a great resource, a great book. All the information is on here. And secondly, if you're here on Sunday mornings, 
um, Gary Emery and Josh Emery, a father-son duo, but they're, they're therapists as well in town, are going to be offering a class, um, a marriage class. And again, these are great opportunities. I would really encourage you guys to be there. Um, hope you guys have a great, great evening. We'll see you guys this weekend and um, next Wednesday, okay? Our prayer team will be up front if you would like prayer. So love you guys.